1: In the Netherlands, sometime between 1525 and 1530, Pieter Bruegel the Elder is heralded as the most significant artist of Dutch and Flemish Renaissance painting, at least in the 16th century. Moving away from religious, classical and historical subjects as the focus for a painting, Bruegel pioneered these amazing landscapes and town scenes, often filled with ordinary people. I happen to love his fight between Carnival and Lent. Carnival is depicted as a fat man with a pot-belly, ruddy-faced, cheerful, hung about with food and sat on a barrel of drink, and Lent is a thin old woman dressed in black and hung about with fish. Bruegel was a pioneer. In part this was because he was a product of his time. 16th century northern Europe was awash with political and religious debates. And if we treat Bruegel's work as a whole, we can see, as today's guest argues, that it thrums with humanity, pushing people to question their own and others' natures, just as thinkers like Erasmus did using the written word. Whether showing people at labour or enjoying pleasure, In scenes of daily life or moments of ritual, and even in his fantastical, surreal spectacles, Bruegel explores what it is to be human. Is man ignorant and insignificant? Is he overambitious and prideful? Is he warlike and a bringer of chaos? To learn more about this fascinating perspective on Bruegel's work, I'm very pleased to welcome Elizabeth Honig, Professor of European Art at Berkeley University. Professor Honig has written widely on the art, literature and visual cultures of early modern Europe, including her Painting and the Market, which explored the ways in which painting responded to changing notions of value and display in Antwerp, followed by her Jan Bruegel and the Sense of Scale, which looked at the aesthetic created by Pieter Bruegel's son. Today, Professor Honig is here to talk to us about her most recent book, Pieter Bruegel and the Idea of Nature, which was published in 2019 by Reaction Books. Professor Honig, thank you so much for coming on Not Just the Tudors. I'm really looking forward to talking to you about one of my favourite artists of all time. And I'm so inspired by the ideas of your book. It's going to be great fun. (laughs) I think so too. (laughs) Now, I know the records are a little patchy, but could we start with a sort of brief biographical outline of Bruegel's life? Do we know where he trained as an artist, if he traveled, who he married, where he spent most of his working life? His
0: very early life is really mysterious. At some point, he clearly ended up in Antwerp. He spent time working for Peter Kuke van Alst, who was a designer of tapestries, stained glass, whatever. And he married Peter Kuke van Alst's daughter, as so often happened with apprentices and their families. So that's his early life. He did travel to Italy, and that's well documented by his own works. Mostly for the rest, he moved between Brussels and Antwerp. He was in one place or the other. And he had two or three children. We're
1: not sure about one of them, but definitely two. And in your book, you suggest that these travels around Europe were very formative for his work. Why do you think this was, you know, many artists traveled, but not many of them turned into him, into Bruegel. So what are your thoughts on what shaped him? That's a really interesting way of putting it because
0: some people would say, oh, they weren't formative at all because his work is so un-Italian. And other artists of his time in Antwerp were much more obviously Italianate. And he's often set up as the guy who sticks with the local tradition. And yet, his travels the whole way through Italy to the very southernmost part of Italy affected in some weird way his world view. He was able to satisfy a certain curiosity He also got to see mountains, things that don't exist in the Netherlands, but were very important for him later. He also met other artists there, artists who had very different backgrounds, were more cosmopolitan. He was in Rome. And although he absolutely did not pick up the style traits of Roman art or whatever, he picked up certain ways of thinking, maybe, about the importance of the artist, which was bigger there. But also, really, his landscape was very much affected by his
1: time crossing the Alps. Yes, in a sense, even if he's not adopting, perhaps, the techniques of Italian Renaissance art. He is adopting the epistemology of the Renaissance. He is producing works that kind of come out of their ways of understanding, their ways of knowing things.
0: I was going to say that the kind of humanistic viewpoint that he presents does attach a lot to northern humanism, but northern humanism attached a lot to Italian humanism. That was the point of humanism was that it was universal and that different humanisms are all part of one web of thinking. So in my book, I talk the most about Erasmus because he's right from there, but Bruegel would have known about
1: other voices as well. It might just be helpful. I think I do this every time anyone mentions the word humanism, but because it has a different meaning in modern society, it might be helpful, if you would, to give your definition.
0: I like to think of Pico and his oration on the dignity of man as being the kind of manifesto of 16th century humanism, which is Bruegel's era. And Pico says human beings were placed at the center of the universe by God to look out at the rest of the world and survey it and appreciate it. And we have that special ability that no other created living thing has because that was what we're here for. And we are outside of the sort of hierarchy of plants and animals and whatever. We stand outside of it. And because we're outside of it, we can also make choices to change. We can rise or fall. We can become almost as good as God, but we can also become bad. And so our ability to change, to make decisions in the world is also unique as far as he's concerned moral decisions are part of the human nature, and that is a fundamental humanist tenet.
1: That's a lovely way of explaining it. And it fits very much into one of the central arguments of your work, which is that Bruegel's pictures were objects for discussion and introspection, this ability of humankind to reflect on things. Can you explain a bit about what this means and also whether it set Bruegel apart from his contemporaries and predecessors.
0: Bruegel really gives us pictures to talk about and to force us not only to talk about them, but to reflect. They aren't static and they don't put forth a message that is unambiguous, which is part of why he's both so fascinating and so frustrating. Because so many artists, you know what they meant. They decided to say something, they said it, and you get the message. That's never true with Bruegel. His paintings have to be animated by people standing in front of them and having discussions. And one of the things they ask you to think about is your own internal system of values, let's say and whether you have been true to it. That sounds so pat, but it's not. That was, again, a fundamental part of the 16th century humanist universe, is figuring out your weaknesses, dealing with them. Don't let them take you over. And I think that's often something that Bruegel's paintings push us to consider.
1: Do we know anything about the people who were discussing and reflecting on his work in his time? Did he have patrons?
0: He did. They were varied. I was going to say they're not one group, but actually quite a few of them were members of one group. And they were the people who worked at the Mint. So they were rather well-to-do, but essentially middle class, upper middle Antwerp people, urban people. Several such people owned his works and they knew each other so they could have seen them at one another's houses, at one another's homes. On the other hand, he also worked for Cardinal Granvelle, who was one of the emissaries of the Spanish government, the Spanish court to the Netherlands and was a big art patron centered in Brussels, and also owned works by Bruegel. Very different sources of patronage.
1: And what he's not doing is painting them, particularly. He's not doing great portraits or anything. What he's very, very good at doing is painting peasants and conveying their energy and the texture of their lives. Was he groundbreaking in his choice of subject?
0: I think he was groundbreaking in his choice of the way that he addressed the peasants. Because people, especially Germans, had painted lots of peasants before Bruegel. But the Germans, especially the middle-class people who bought paintings and prints and stuff, they had very mixed feelings about peasants because of things like the Peasant War. Peasants in Germany had a much more negative overtone already. But in the Netherlands, peasants had a very different meaning, which Bruegel completely picks up on. Peasants were like the guardians of the local past. They held it most purely and clearly, so that proverbs that were peasant wisdom were something from our past. Peasant customs, folk customs, meant something about our past to the Netherlands. And that's the side of peasants that Bruegel puts forth in his prints and paintings.
1: That means I have to ask you about a relatively difficult picture to talk about (laughs) his Netherlandish proverbs, which is, from 1559, because it's exactly about this idea of generating discussion and introspection. So this is a very tricky one to describe. It's so peopled with activity. You've got a man in the foreground digging a hole. We've got two men shearing sheep. You've got an old woman appearing to throttle a devil, a man looking like he's going to plunge a sword into a brick wall, and about 200 other people doing things. Can you tell me some of what these details mean, draw out some of the people and what they're doing and why was put them there?
0: this is a perfect example of both paintings that need to be talked about and peasant wisdom. It brings them together perfectly and, and rather uniquely, although there had been illustrations of Proverbs before that, but nothing like this. So what Bruegel does is take Proverbs and the Dutch Flemish language is very proverb rich, remarkably proverb rich. Even today, it's still a lot of proverbs. So he takes these proverbs and he visualizes them. And as he visualizes them, they both appear ludicrous and nonsensical, like the guy leaning out the window to shit on a globe. But and you take that nonsensical looking thing, like the things you described the guy pissing on the inn sign and whatever you take that and you retransform it into the words, and the words have this wisdom to them. And so it's a fascinating dynamic that's created between visualization and remaking them into words. People have studied this a lot. They've identified what these proverbs are. Some of them are familiar to us from English as well, like the man banging his head against a brick wall. We say that too, but we don't actually do it. And when you see a guy banging his head against a brick wall. You think, that's crazy. And then you put it back into the proverb and you think, I was just doing something like that. I was banging my head against a brick wall when I was trying to write this text about something or other and I couldn't remember this. And so it relates to something you've done in your life. But more of the proverbs are like, let's take the guy right in the middle who is dressed as a merchant. He's a middle-class guy. And he is apparently distributing roses on the ground and there are pigs eating them. But what he's doing is a proverb, and we have it too. We would say casting pearls before swine. It's a biblical proverb. And in the Netherlands, it's we cast roses before swine, but it's the same idea. And so what he's doing is wasting his talents, wasting his effort on those who don't deserve it. And that's something we've probably all done too. But it looks so crazy when Bruegel puts it into a visual form.
1: So why do you think he's doing that? Why is he putting proverbs into pictures?
0: Proverbs were a very popular form of literature, right through the 16th and 17th centuries in the Netherlands. It's current. It's not weird and out there like it would be today. Erasmus published vast amounts of collected proverbs. And that, as I said, keeps going on into the 17th century. So to collect proverbs is actually a humanist exercise. There are ancient proverbs, there are biblical proverbs, there are peasant proverbs, and often they overlap in interesting ways, and Erasmus talks about that in his proverb collections. So collecting proverbs is essentially a humanist thing, but in this painting, Bruegel sets those proverbs into action in a way that no book could ever do, and he sets them into action For an audience who are fascinated by this kind of talking, he makes a painting that it has both an erudite value and a kind of social fascination value. Those are the things that he's doing. March, 2023 marks 20 years since the start of the Iraq war. The war was waged to rid the world of a brutal dictator yet it would end marred in controversy so why did the iraq war go so badly wrong and what legacies has it left behind today well i'm your host james patton rogers and every monday on the warfare podcast from history hit we're exploring a different aspect of this tumultuous period in history we'll be asking what was the role of the uk government and prime minister
1: tony blair could the secretary of state legally order British forces into Iraq? And could British forces follow that law?
0: And how did ISIS rise from the destruction left behind? But ISIS, this peculiar strain that we all came to to know very well in uh, the mid-2010s, really got its start because of the US invasion of Iraq. Join me, James Patton Rogers, on the Warfare podcast from History Hit, as we look back on one of the most controversial conflicts in recent history. plushcare.com slash weight loss.
1: Let's turn to a series of paintings that might be among his most famous. Those that represent the months or seasons of the year in landscapes, and six of them survive as the hay harvest and the gloomy day. Is that right? Six?
0: Five of them survive, but in Michael Frayn's novel, Headlong, he has a great description of what he thinks the sixth one
1: might have looked like. I remember reading that novel. Yes, that's a wonderful novel. So five of them survive. Perhaps the most famous is Hunters in the Snow from 1565. And here we've got, to remind people, a snowy scene in the left foreground. We've got three hunters who are kind of bent against the cold. And all they've got with them is a fox. They've got their dogs. And ahead of them is this valley with a frozen lake. People are skating. And behind it, jagged mountains, you've mentioned. Not going to find those in the Netherlands. And the eye is also drawn to the crows that we can see in the bear trees and the magpie soaring through the air. In each of Bruegel's landscapes we go on a journey with the people in the picture as we study the picture and you suggest that the pieces provoke thought about man's place in the cosmos. Can you tell me more about this line of thought?
0: Yeah. So on the one hand, we have Pico in that saying man is above the cosmos. Man is outside of it. Mankind, humankind, let me just say, has this ability to be detached. And that was something that went back to antiquity, too, a kind of valuing of detachment From the world, and humanists certainly knew about that and related it to a Christian detachment, which is Pico's, hopefully, talking about the God created cosmos. A lot of Bruegel's landscapes give us the ability to detach from them and to contemplate what people do in the world. So especially in these paintings, the seasons paintings, there is both quite a lot of human action and human interaction with the natural world. And there is our place which feels outside and somewhat above it not really quite on the hill with those hunters, although they help stabilize us so that we can understand our projection down into the landscape. The hunters have worked the landscape in one way. They've caught the fox and the fox was after the chickens and that's why they had to get it. But right by them, there's a bunch of people who are singeing a pig. So they're gonna be making a pig dinner. But then below them all in the valley, people play in nature, people skate, people have a kind of natural joy in what nature provides. So, Bruegel sets out lots of different ways to think about humanity in the world, even in one painting. But each of the paintings in this series gives the same balance that there's something that's hard, that's tough, that human beings have had to grapple with, whether it's bringing in the harvest or planting or whatever, things that take and that are hard. But somewhere in the painting, there's also joy and an embrace of the world. And so those things are balanced out.
1: In the seasons, particularly, perhaps just because of the nature of the series, but Bruegel really puts in an emphasis on the weather, which isn't something that we'd really seen in art before that point. And it's not really something seen much in the decades after his death. So why was focusing on the weather so significant? How should we see it as this kind of meditation on human nature?
0: I think that the weather adds an element of contingency and chance into the natural world that isn't usually there in landscapes even seasonal landscapes even the pages of a book of hours you get the guys are out there planting and sowing and whatever but you don't get clouds rolling over the hills in the background you don't get that nature has this balance between threat and promise and i think that is what weather often provides for bruegel
1: You also place Bruegel's landscape paintings in the context of stoic and neo-stoic thinking that existed in Europe at the time. Can you give us a sense of what you mean by contextualizing Bruegel's landscapes in these ideas? Stoicism
0: is something we still think about today as meaning an ability to withdraw from chaos, from things that are difficult and bad, and to stand above them and keep your moral fiber together, even in a bad time, which I talk about that more in the chapter on war and how people in his time tried to counsel people affected by war, which was practically everybody in continental Europe in this period, on how to retain a sense of the self and its integral virtue, let's say.
1: Well, let's talk a bit then about the war paintings. I mean, The Triumph of Death is perhaps the standout example. And, you know, as you've said, this is a world that's punctuated by war, the Dutch revolt, of course, being amongst it. But most of the time when you see battle paintings at this time, they're sort of heroic, you know, like this Battle of the Spurs is an example. And Bruegel does manage to make war seem terrible. The, the Triumph of Death has this kind of vast army of skeletons. Could you perhaps describe some of the scenes in this painting and their meaning and what he's saying about war?
0: This painting is incredibly nihilistic. It offers no hope at all. There was a tradition of the triumph of death. Holbein had done woodcuts related to it, and Bruegel knew those. But the triumph of death was usually somehow related to Christian hope, right? Because that's what we're supposed to do as Christians. We have hope. But Bruegel's triumph of death offers no refuge for the hopeful person. There is nothing in it that, is happy. There is an army of skeletons, that is why it's a war painting and not just a death painting. And they march in ranks with shields and they're armed and they are coming for you. And the foreground is filled with very different types of figures who are all being subjected to the killing frenzy of the soldiers of death. There are, like, young, happy, upper-class people who only a moment ago had been having a little party over at the right, and they were just on the dessert course when all of a sudden, boom, death comes. There's a king on the other side. Also, death comes. But as you go through all of those enumeration of figures being killed by death, then you move out into the landscape. And that to me is the worst part because the landscape is ravaged. Nothing will ever grow there again. It is brown and barren. And the only things that seem tree-like are gallows. Instruments of death are out there in this brown, awful landscape and in the sea beyond it the ships are sinking It's really pessimistic and there had not been by Bruegel's time in the Netherlands a war that was bad but there had been in Rome and and I dare say that he knew about the horrors of war, not just through literature. And Erasmus wrote a lot about the horrors of war. But he also had met people who had experienced it. But he also just had an amazing imagination. Did
1: this critique of war make him enemies. I'm thinking of kings and rulers who might potentially have been patrons, Philip II, Duke of Alba, you know, Charles V, people who were absolutely waging war at this time.
0: So I think that nobody was, let's say, in favor of war that hurt civilians. And most, not that they didn't do it, But a lot of the civilian chaos and casualties in war actually happened because the troops weren't paid. And so the people who rushed into Rome to sack it were unpaid troops. And same with Antwerp, a generation later, that was the result of the Spanish failing to pay the soldiers. This was never a good thing. And so when Bruegel paints, for instance, in his Massacre of the Innocents, a picture that looks like a Flemish village being horrendously attacked by an army. What it reads as is a disorderly kind of army that is doing terrible things. Although in his case, in the case of Massacre of the Innocents, there is a commander in there. And you would think that this would read as something really bad about the Spanish and their behavior. And I would have thought that too, except that this painting was repeated. It was copied many times by his two sons a generation later when the Netherlands were under Spanish rule. Go figure. It is always open to different readings. And that is Bruegel's hallmark.
1: I mean, it's so clever, the painting of the massacre of the innocents, isn't it? Because... At one level, it could be a comment on the Spanish occupation of the Netherlands. And on another, it's a perfectly orthodox reflection on a festival of the Christian church. And so it can always pass as that. Do you think when you look at a painting like that, which is so moving, you've got that cruelly, piled group of infants being speared by soldiers and you know there's a family begging for the life of their child and i mean it's so distressing you say it was later painted over do you think he's trying to encourage empathy is he targeting our empathy at any particular individual or group not at any individual or
0: group because he's too ambiguous for that, but I do think that he's trying to create empathy for civilians who are affected by the horrors of war. And this painting, not only was it copied many times, it was also described twice by Carl von Monder in his writings about art. So it clearly had a strong impact on him, and he uses it as an example of the depiction of emotions. And he says, no one has ever shown grief and despair and desperation the way that Bruegel does. And this is so interesting because in modern times, this would not be the painting that people would point to if you said, tell us about people showing grief and despair. And yet the more you look closely at it, the more you realize that Indeed, the grief and despair are visceral, even in these little bodies, because relative to the size of the painting, the people are pretty small, but you have to go close. And that's part of what makes it feel so awful, is that you get quite physically close to these people, and then you realize their emotional suffering. It's powerful.
1: Women seem to play quite a significant part in his work. Various examples in Christ carrying the cross, we've got the women shielding their faces in horror when Christ stumbles.
0: Yes, because women are traditionally the gender that don't control their emotions as well as men who express. And so yes, he definitely uses them for that.
1: Okay, because he's also got Anger, depicted as a sort of fully armed woman, and in Dule Greek, fierce fighters are all women. And I wonder if he's making a comment about women's nature. I suppose what you're saying is that they are considered more emotional in the 16th century.
0: They were definitely considered more emotional. Bruegel had, according to Van Mander, but Van Mander knew a lot of anecdotes about Bruegel. So although we don't know the facts of his life, we have quirky stories about him that could well be true. And one of them was that he once dated a woman who lied a lot, and he couldn't deal with her lying and so he said he was going to cut notches on a stick every time she told a lie, and if he got to the end of the stick, he would dump her and so um, so so he had he had his standards for women, not unreasonable, but de la grite, yes, she is the angry woman she is the woman who is consumed by anger, and she leads an entire army of women to the gates of hell. And she is an example of a lot of the sins or the weaknesses that the humanists most liked to trash, including anger and avarice. There were kind of three biggies that we don't like if we're humanists, and anger and avarice are two of them. And this is a picture about women who have sort of unleashed hell upon the world in their letting their anger and their avarice just take over. And that's who De La is, Mad Meg.
1: I wanted to pick up on something you said earlier about joy and play, because he's also got these wonderful paintings, like Children's Games, which, where you've got a town taken over by children at play, or the wedding dance, the scenes of peasants dancing. So he shows a lot of popular festivities. And I wondered what you think his paintings have to teach us about fun and folly.
0: Oh, that's a good combination. And there are definitely fools sometimes in these paintings, not the children's games, but in at least one of the peasant dance paintings, there's a fool in the background. The children's games is different from the peasants, but they're related. Because all of us have been children, right? We've all been there, done that. And that's part of what makes the painting children's games. You can really lose yourself in it in a pleasant way because they're children. They're not supposed to be boring and adult. And Erasmus too was totally clear about this. Children, they play as good. Castiglione writes about it in The Courtier. Humanist people were completely accepting that there was a time of life when play was what you did. And the play in children's games is a particular type of play. It is a non-competitive play. It's a play that's bodily and where you let go, you somersault, you ride the barrel, you blow bubbles, you do things that are kinetic, and the kineticism is what's pleasurable. Erasmus was not in favor of games where you were supposed to be the winner. He thought that was a bad thing. So we also see those kind of fun games just for fun. But it's harder to interpret something like the peasant dance because those are adults. So what do we make of that? They have the same kind of kinetic bodily pleasure as the children in children's games, but they're more like us. In his prints of peasant games, the peasants are much more like children, and we just read them as childish adults, or that peasants have never grown up. But in the paintings, which are large, they're the normal Bruegel size, couple, maybe two and a half feet wide, I'm thinking. And the peasants are weighty, and they're very embodied in adult bodies, and they stomp, and they trump, and they run, and they blow the bagpipes. But I think it's pretty clear from his Prince of Peasants that his is a much less judgmental read on peasants than, say, the German imagery of peasants, and something that does see them as more just human beings unfettered by civilization. This has been the subject of a lot of debate in the art history literature, but I feel pretty secure that although we don't look at them and say I wish I were like that oh no we do not wish we were like that because we have grown beyond that but we still think it's pleasurable and that's not
1: a terrible thing. That's so interesting. By encouraging reflection or discussion about human nature Do you think that Bruegel wanted to make his beholders into better people? Or do you actually think he's encouraging kind of critique? No, I think he
0: wanted to make his beholders into better people. But they had to do it themselves. He can't make them that way. The point of humanist thinking, it's self-reflection. You are responsible for your own act and deeds and the only way you can get there is by looking into yourself and saying I tend to be egotistical I tend to be proud which is the third of the big humanist sins and I need to find ways to not let that sin guide my actions I need to learn humility but the paintings don't teach you that absolutely not. They don't give you examples of humility. They give you examples of pride. And you have to ask yourself, heck, have I been like that?
1: So Bruegel's demanding of his spectators a kind of collaborative work where they engage and think about it.
0: Yes, that is absolutely what they demand. More than almost any other painter in this period, they are very collaborative with their beholders. They demand a lot of time and thought, and that's completely deliberate.
1: Well, this has been a really wonderful introduction to his work, and we've got him some really deep areas. Thank you so much for this wonderful overview. It's been such a pleasure.
0: It's been a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for inviting me.
1: And thanks to my producer, Rob Weinberg, and my researcher, Esther Arnott. And thanks to you for listening to Not Just the Tudors from History Hit. We're always eager to hear your suggestions for podcast subjects. So drop me a line at notjustthetudors at historyhit.com or on Twitter at notjusttudors. Also, if you're in need of an extra hit between podcasts, do sign up to our newsletter, Tudor Tuesday, Details of how to do that are in the notes below this podcast. And please rate, rank, bestow multiple stars and comment on this podcast wherever you listen, including on Spotify. It really helps more people find not just the Tudors. History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful.